Please take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 2. I've just been used to saying Luke 2 from the last couple of weeks. We are in Matthew 2 today. Um, if you've not been with us the last couple of weeks, uh, we have been on this journey of looking at Christmas from different perspectives. We looked at Christmas from the perspective of an almighty God, the creator and sustainer of all life. We looked at Christmas in regard to his plan, and in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, we find this, that at the exact time God sent forth his son. In his redemptive plan, at the exact time appointed by God the Father, he sent his son. And why did he send his son? Directly in that text, we find that he sent his son to redeem, to save souls. We carried on from that study and we spent some time in Luke 2. We looked at Christmas, the Christmas story from the perspective of the angels. I'm not going to go back and reteach that, but my heart, ever since we've been looking at this, just overwhelmed with the joy that the, that the angels bring to the story. Shouting for joy, great joy. Then we carried on and we looked at these lowly shepherds last week. God chose to proclaim the greatest announcement ever to whom? Lowly shepherds, ordinary people. We praise God for that. That God in his sovereign grace sees fit to save ordinary people like me, like you. People that don't deserve God's grace, but people that are showered with God's grace nonetheless. So this morning we are and the Christmas story from the perspective of, as Mike said, the wise guys, the wise men. So I hope you're ready to hold on. I want to jump right into the text this morning. So let's look at Matthew chapter 2. If you would follow along, verses 1 through 12, um, go ahead and uh, you can turn your handout over if you'd like. It's on that, or you can follow directly from your scriptures or your device. I'm going to start in verse 1 and go all the way to verse 12 as we see this story unfold. Verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Verse 3, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where this Christ was to be born. And they told him, well, in Bethlehem of Judea. For it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Verse 9. And listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that, had, that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came and rested over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. 
Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream to not return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So this is a very familiar text to us. Any of us who have engaged in the Christmas story, we, we've heard this many times. I want us to look a little deeper, though, into what's happening here. To kind of maybe gain a, a little bit more of a perspective of these wise guys, these wise men. What's happening in their life? What is happening here in this text? Well, I think there's great indication in verse 1. And we're going to spend most of the time today right in verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2 set an amazing context. These set the setting for the entire story. What's happening in verse 1? Here it is. Now, after Jesus was born. So let's just take one phrase at a time. Now, after Jesus was born, what's the setting of this story? Having been promised for 4,000 years, Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh, had been born at the exact right time. Now we find ourselves, and this is a key word there, I believe, after. In our English translations, it's translated after. Uh, in, in the original language, it's like having been born. <laughs> All right? So having been already born, having already experienced the stable scene, if you want to put it that way. After this has happened, we now have another part of the story, and that is with these wise men. The time frame of this story, as you've probably already wrestled with in your own mind, you watch any number of Christmas stories and on TV or you read the story, you're always trying to figure out when these wise guys showed up. When did the wise men show up with their gifts? Bothers me sometimes that I don't know exactly why, when. And, and I don't want to pretend that I know. <laughs> this morning we just know that it happened after Jesus was born, but then very clearly in the text, verse nine, uh, verse sorry, verse eleven, it says that Jesus was in a house. So sometime after the table, uh, the, the stable experience, sometime before King Herod died, and we know that King Herod decreed in this passage, as we continue on, he decreed the death of these young ones. So it's sometime after the stable experience, sometime before Herod had died. So in our minds, I think we could tag it pretty clearly to somewhere months, if not maybe a year and a half, to after Jesus was born. You may disagree with me, but that's okay. One of us will be set right when we get to heaven. They have a house here. Jesus is found in this house, and there's another phrase that's mentioned here, in Bethlehem of Judea. Clearly, Jesus, Joseph, and Mary are still in Bethlehem. They haven't left. This is the place of the stable. There's a lot of filler that we don't know in this story right here, but through time, I believe Joseph, seeing Mary, seeing the child, caring for them. We know that they took Jesus to be to, uh, to the temple, and the temple experience as Jesus, as they dedicated Jesus. Remember that part of the story. We know that that happened, but they have kind of staked their temporary home in Bethlehem, which is completely normal for, for Joseph. Why? Joseph was a carpenter. He could pick up and go in different places. In our minds, we think carpenter with hammer and nail, but generally in this culture, it was more like a mason worker. 
He could build houses with stonework. He was very gifted at building, building things. And I believe in this story, somehow Joseph found some temporary work in Bethlehem until God clearly led them on. So they are in Bethlehem of Judea. By the way, why is Bethlehem so important to this story? I love this. Because who's writing this account? At the top of our pages and the top of your Bibles, all right, it is one Matthew. Matthew is writing primarily to an audience of Jews. And what is he constantly doing through the book of Matthew? Here's what he's doing. He's taking Old Testament scriptures and implanting them into the Jesus story, the story of the Messiah. Why? Because he's clearly giving credence to Jesus as the Messiah. If you want a fun project this Christmas season, read through the book of Matthew and every time you find as it was written or and it was prophesied, circle it. Because what Matthew is doing is he's constantly saying, this Jesus that I'm talking about, there he was in the Old Testament. He's prophesied. This is consistent with the story we've talked about the last couple weeks. Matthew writing here, talking of Bethlehem. And who does he quote from? We know the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we find very clearly that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born, the symbolism here is amazing, he would be born in what was known as the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem means. Out of the house of bread came the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Micah 5 verse 2 very clearly distinguishes us this, story, this in the story for us. By the way, when was Micah written? 700 years prior to this event. I don't think any one of us can deny that God the Father had a direct plan for the very location of Jesus' birth. I think as Mary was with child, as they were traveling very possibly up the Jericho Road into Jerusalem, trying to find their way to Bethlehem, she's like, oh boy, this baby's coming. Joseph, step on it, man. This baby's coming. And I believe as the angels watch this, I believe as the story's unfolding, I believe possibly even in Joseph's mind, there was a bit of an assurance, we're going to make it to Bethlehem, because that's where the Christ child is going to be born. So Bethlehem's a big part of this story. They were in Bethlehem. I want us to continue on to the next phrase, which is kind of setting the stage for this story with the wise men. It was in the days of Herod the king. We know a lot about the little guy, the big king, Herod. This is Herod the Great. He was the client king of Judea. What do I mean by that? Although he was known as King Herod, and you know the story, He's clearly subservient to the Roman power, the Roman emperor. That is what's happening. I mean, this is not uncommon in this culture. Herod would be what was known as a vassal king. And this is cool when you think of Roman history. This Herod was put in place, if we remember to our Philippian study, this, Rome, this, this Herod was put in place by the Roman Senate. Do you remember this story? They placed him as the king of Judea, as the overseer of Judea. Then through the history of Rome, guess who now has kept him as the king of Judea? Yes, Caesar Augustus. We find his name in the story. Octavius. 
He's the one that has kept Herod as the subservient king, the vassal king of Judea. And so what did, you, what, what did Herod do? I mean, think about what he did. He was ruler, he was developer, and his, one of his primary purposes of being in Judea was to be a peacemaker. I mean, any type, anytime you read anything about Herod the Great, you find that this guy had a massive ego. He was all about himself, which, to be quite honest with you, there's not much of a better contrast to Herod to King Jesus, the selflessness of Jesus Christ. Herod was all about himself. He wanted to make a great name. Sometimes we call it little man syndrome because they say he was a smaller fella and he was constantly trying to boast about himself. He wanted to do this. He wanted to build anything as grand as he possibly could to establish his name. And he did. This guy built all kinds of stuff. In fact, 10 years before Jesus Christ was born, you can kind of stamp on there, finished the finished project, project of the second temple. Herod had finished the grand reopening of the temple, 10, 8, right around 10 BC. He wanted to be known as the guy who did all these special things for the Jews. This is Herod the king. Herod ruled with a firm hand, but he attempted to appease the Jews on several different occasions. We need to keep moving through this story. So it says this, Behold, wise men. Here they are, these wise guys. We three kings of Orient are, right? Well, that's what we sing. That's what the kids sing. I want to say these guys were not kings. You know that. We know that. They're not kings. They're what are known as what? Magi. Through history, these are the wise men. These are the magicians. I mean, when you think about them, they're the court musicians. They're the clerics. They're the philosophers. They're the advisors. These are men, especially in this context, with these guys who diligently studied the skies. In their culture, these men, these wise men, were very influential. They were men of high cultural influence and respect. How many of them were there? We don't know. They had three gifts, so we surmised there were three of them, but we don't know. Technically, there could have been anywhere from two, because it's in the plural, to a whole group of guys that could fit in a small house. We don't know how many there were. Nonetheless, these wise men came, as the scripture says, from the east. We're setting the stage for these guys, and I believe this is a massive clue to understanding what's happening with these wise men. This is a broad statement, but in this culture, with other biblical references... This is most likely talking about a place called Persia. Better known to us by another place which is called Babylon. By the way, does that ring a bell to anyone in this room? When you think about Old Testament history, does that kind of just ring this bell like, oh yeah, I recognize that place. Well, quite honestly, I believe this is a massive clue to understanding the approach of these wise men. Why? Well, what's happening towards the end of Old Testament history. When you open your Bible and you read through it, we're not going to go through and kind of walk through it again, but I want us to tag ourselves right to the end of what's happening in Old Testament history. What's the storyline? What's happening? Well, you remember with me that God's people in God's land clearly rebelled and disobeyed God. We went through a time of prophets and a time of kings. 
And what happened? Just like we saw when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, God's people were now kicked out of the land of promise. Do you remember this? Who are the ones that took them captive? They were the nations to the east. There is Syria, then later Babylon, and now we find Persia involved in this. We find very clearly that God's justice and God's mercy is found with the nations to the east. And these wise men are clearly from the east. This group of exiles, if you remember, in this group of exiles was a certain fella. He wrote a book. You remember his name? Let's go with Daniel. You remember the story of Daniel? A great story. When I think of the Old Testament and I think of what God's doing, I can't help but run to the story of Daniel. And I'm going to try to keep this brief today. But when I think of Daniel, I think of a young man in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, taken to these, to these countries to the east. They said, we're going to take all this stuff away from you. And Daniel said, you can take my name away from me. You can try to change this about me. You can change my location. But here's one thing that you are not going to change about me, and that is my God. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself, we find in Daniel chapter 1. That is this Daniel. I mean, there's a whole bunch to talk about in the life of Daniel. I'm going to summarize it by saying this. Daniel lived his 70 years in Babylon. Daniel served, and I love this because what did God Almighty do? God Almighty blessed this man with a certain amount of prestige in this country. He became, through God's power, not the powers of all this magician stuff, but through God's power, Daniel clearly became the head magi. Daniel, by God's grace, rose the ranks, climbed the ranks of this, of this cultural status there, and all by God's grace. We know it's by God's grace because what did Daniel do at least three times a day? Prayed. This is a man who sought the face of God. This is a man who diligently worshipped God in a foreign land. Daniel lived with purpose among the nations. And we're going to kind of start tagging a, a phrase to Daniel's life, and that is among the nations. Listen for that term. Daniel lived for God among the nations. Daniel purposed in his life to live for God. Daniel specifically and regularly talked of the God of Israel. And I believe, and you can't, so I can't tag this down with 100% certainty, but as you piece the clues together, I believe Daniel talked often of the coming Messiah, of the kingly line of David, this one who would dynamically come and redeem Israel. And I believe he incessantly talked to the Magi about this king. I believe there's probably plenty of writing from Daniel back in Babylon and later Persia. And I don't want to belabor this. But I do want to read this. If you Just listen with me for a minute. The account of da Daniel's reputation. And let this speak for itself. Towards the end of Daniel's uh, time in Babylon. Toward the end of his time he had served Nebuchadnezzar, and then he had served Belshazzar, and then there was a transition about to happen in the kingdom. There was a party that happened. Remember the, the writing on the wall? Remember that story? There was something that happened. 
Daniel was not present at that party, but yet Belshazzar, who is having the time of his life abusing the God of Israel's stuff, if you want to put it that way. Daniel was not part of that party. However, Daniel was brought into the picture very quickly. And you remember the story that the princess came to Belshazzar after the writing on the wall. Belshazzar was freaked out. Belshazzar knew something was happening. And she came and said, I know a guy. And let me read of his reputation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed and his lords were astonished. The queen, because of the words of the king and of the Lord, his lords, came to the banquet hall. The queen spoke saying this, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. And here it is. I love the, this phrase. There's a man. There's a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy God is. Wow. In all of this kingdom, the queen knew of a man on whom the spirit of God was alive. This man who lived and served the holy God of Israel. This man who had a massive reputation in all of Babylon for serving the king Serving the sovereign God of the universe. I mean, if you continue on in this, this reputation story, it says this. O king, uh, sorry, verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom in whom the spirit of the holy God is. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods. And I, and I, I think you could read that part of that would be like the spirit of the gods, but so much more. They were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the father of the king, made him chief of the magi, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Inasmuch as an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding, and interpreting dreams, solving riddles, and explaining enigmas were found on Daniel, who the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called and he will give you the interpretation. I read that story in Daniel and I think, wow. There's a fellow here that had a massive reputation for serving God. As we look at God's redemptive story just unfold through the scriptures, you know how I view Daniel? As God's missionary to the nations. Here's a man who unashamedly lived for an almighty God in a place that it was not popular to live for the almighty God of the Jews. That is this Daniel. What's the point? Daniel, God's missionary to the nations, left a lasting impression on the nations for the sake of God's glory. Um, we continuing on through history, remember that God's people, some of them, not all of them, many of them, returned to Israel to start to build. Remember the fellows that helped them build? Ezra, Nehemiah, they started to reestablish Jerusalem. And then, after 500 years, at the exact right time, remember, we keep saying this, it is, it is the exact right time. God sent his son, Jesus Christ. What's happening on the world scale right now? Well, after 20 generations, I believe in the East, Daniel still had an impression. Daniel's writings constantly would be brought up. Magicians, magi, these kind of guys, they remembered history. They meticulously would write down things that would happen when someone would do a big deal. Something was happening. 
And Daniel was a big deal in Babylon and in Persia. And I believe these guys, in their mind, they kept thinking, yes, we have housed these people of Jerusalem, these Jews, but something's going to happen special for them. Their king's coming. Daniel talked of their king. The king is coming. Watch for him. So in this text, we find that these wise men now came from the east. And where do they go to? Jerusalem. It's a big part of our story. Now, we're going to talk about this in just a minute when it comes to the actual star and how, where the star landed. What is this? This is 900 miles away. I mean, it would take three months to travel to this location. And these men journeyed to Jerusalem to see the promised king of the Jews. And I think as they were traveling, they realized we're going to see the promised king of the Magi, Daniel. Again, I want to say that a lot of that, uh, what I just said is not written word for word in our scriptures But as you put the clues together, I think very possibly Daniel had a massive part in what was happening with these wise men. So, what does the text, and now we're traveling to verse 2, reveal about the perspective of these wise men? This is the series. What's the perspective of these men? They'd heard about this king of the Jews Now, what is going on in their minds? Well, let's just look at this. Here's how we find this, I believe, as they enter into Jerusalem looking for this king. These magi, these wise men are traveling into Jerusalem, and now we're looking for someone. And actually, the way it's structured, they didn't just come into Jerusalem and go straight to Herod. It's almost as if they were incessantly asking, hey, where's the king of the Jews? Where's he that was born king of the Jews? I don't know. Hey, where's the king of the Jews? Hey, where's the king of the Jews? And the constant response would have been, we don't know, but Herod's the king of the Jews. So where did they go? They went to Herod realizing that he was not the king of the Jews that they were looking for. They constantly were looking for this king of the Jews. Verse 2 says, where where is he who has been born king of the Jews? And I want us to realize three simple things, and we'll, we'll make this quick. Three simple things about the perspective of these magi. First of all, the Magi realized that Jesus, he was worthy to be king of the Jews. Through God's revelation to them, and we don't know, again, the whole story of what Daniel's been putting into their heads, but this king, this one that was born, he is a worthy king. Magi recognized that the true king to reign over his true people had come. The supreme, longed-for king who, had, who would guide the mass of unstable Jews was not a stand-in vassal king controlled by Rome. It was not Herod. It was not a flaky pushover king that would make alliances with the godless kingdoms of the world, as is found very clearly in the Jewish texts. But this is the true king. This is the true king of David's line. These magicians, these magi, they were looking for the true king. This is the one, and I think very possibly they would have gotten a hold of this text. This is the one who is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, who would shoulder the government of his people. This is the king that these magi are looking for. 
this is the king of Daniel and this is the king of Daniel's people that they have been longing for. What's the point? These magi clearly didn't know all the details. I don't want to paint a picture that these guys knew exactly what they were talking about. They didn't know all the details. These members of the nations didn't know all of the Old Testament of the scriptures. I think very possibly they knew some of it from Ezra's writings while he was in exile. I think very possibly they could have interacted with it, but these guys didn't know all the details. After 500 years of interacting with Daniel and Ezra, they didn't know all the clues, but they knew this. There would be born a king of the Jews. They knew that king was coming. In redemptive history, with much more of the story revealed to us, now we see the bigger picture of what God has done. We realize that God's plan is coming. And we realize that God's plan was through King Jesus. However, brothers and sisters in Christ, we realize that in that stable, in that manger, there was a baby born. This baby came first as a lamb before he could come as a lion. This king came first as a servant before he reigned supreme. That is the life of Jesus. Jesus was to suffer as a servant before he could reign supreme as a king. That is the first coming of Christ. And now as we see the redemptive story kind of unfold, which by the way, there's a lot of clues in what Daniel wrote about the second coming of Jesus. We see the story unfold. We can, we can with all we have, look forward to the coming, the second coming of this king this King of kings and Lord of lords. Nevertheless, all of his earthly ministry, Jesus, all of his earthly ministry, all of his sacrifice set up for his eternal reign. I want us to look at something else about the Magi. Magi. First of all, these Magi realized that Jesus was worthy. He was the worthy king. But from their perspective, something else was going on. And what revealed that he he was the real deal? I want to go quickly through this. But here's what revealed it. Where is he who has been born? For we saw the star when it rose. Okay, sometimes we just fly through that, don't we? It's just part of the story for us. But can we actually take that in for a second? We saw a special star. We're talking about the analysis of a group of men who for decades, their entire lives, they were trained to find any irregularity in the star formations. They know the consistencies of the skies. They know that they were not, these, these stars were not just thrown up there. They were very intentional and purposeful. That the God of all creation Very possibly they're putting this together. By the way, anytime you want to learn more about the God of creation, you can look up and just be overwhelmed because the heavens declare the glory of God, as the scripture clearly says. These men constantly looked at the skies. They saw this star. The Magi realized that something supernatural was happening. This is not normal. What we just saw was not normal. By the way, I would have liked to have been next to the first Magi that saw that star. Yo, guys, get over You got to check this out. Look at that. I mean, every night of looking at the stars, I'm like, yep, 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 yep. This night was like, yep, yep, nope. Haven't seen that one before. That's amazing. Guys, look at that. What is that? 
So the million dollar question that you're probably, it's probably in your mind, is, is in my mind all the time, is what was this star? You ever ask yourself that question? In fact, I had a little conversation after last week. What was this star? Well, quite frankly, and I want to disappoint you today, I don't know. <laughs> and you won't know. I mean, I do know this. Here's some, oper- I mean, here's some possibilities. It may have been an actual star created by God for just this event. It may have been. It may have been some sort of supernova that briefly appeared on the night of the birth and caught the eye of the intrigued wise men. It may have been purely an unexplained supernatural light from God Almighty. Um, how about this? It may have been the glow from millions of angels singing glory to God in the highest, visible 900 miles away. I don't know, it's a bit of speculation to that. It may have been only visible for a select few. We don't know all the details of this star. What we do know from this text is that this this star appeared to rise, verse 2. It appeared to rise, it was visible from the east, 900 miles away. It was visible. It then seemed, if you look at the story and you just take the truth of the text, not based on our, what we want the text to say, it does appear that this star disappeared. And then in verse 9, after these magi have traveled out of faith, I believe, it reappeared to the wise men as they departed Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And guided them right to the house of Jesus in Bethlehem. So here's my personal thought. Take it or leave it. Again, when we get to heaven, we'll see. Here's my personal thought. That this was purely a supernatural light from Almighty God. I mean, in my mind comes the Old Testament story of the Shekinah glory of God that traveled and guided his people through the wilderness. Do you remember that account? In my mind, I think this very possibly was something very similar to that. That the almighty God of all creation had planted a supernatural light to guide these nations to the Savior. In my mind, I think this light clearly appeared over Bethlehem on the night of the birth of Christ. This light was revealed, I think, only to the ones that God wanted to see it. I think this light was revealed temporarily to Magi to the east to attract the worship. I don't want to make light of this, but what comes to my mind is these ridiculous mosquito lights. <laughs> You've seen these beautiful lights and mosquitoes hit them because they're attracted to the light. All right, that in no way compares to what's happening here other than the fact that they're attracted. I believe these Magi were attracted to this awesome light that they saw in the east or in the west. I believe this light disappeared, requiring the Magi to take a trip by faith. You may disagree with me on that. That's okay. But I think every step of this 900 900 miles was a step of faith for these Magi. Then I believe this light reappeared to them through the final leg of their journey after they had talked with Herod, I believe that God Almighty in his sovereign hand placed this supernatural light over the house and said, there he is. Go find him. You've made this trip by faith. Now go find him. Here he is. 
Okay, doesn't, all of those details you can surmise about, but what does this star mean? What does this light mean? However you look at this star, what does it mean? Here's it, what it means. Very clearly, something supernatural has just happened. This is not normal. By the sovereign one who controls the skies. This star demanded a response of wonder and a step of faith. Point is this, these magi who studied the skies diligently clearly recognized that this king had the backing of the powerful sustainer and controller of the skies. This is not the norm. As we talked about at the beginning of this service, this is more than just a baby in a manger. This is more than just a baby sitting on the lap of Mary. This is the king of all life. This child is one who is significant in all of history. The simple application is this. Do I realize this? I think in our minds we have this cute story of the Christ child in this manger and sometimes it stays there. This Christ child, this this cute little human being, God-man, this perfect one, has a halo over him in our minds. And that's kind of where it stops sometimes. But the fact of the matter is we are to see this Christ child, I believe, the same way that the Magi saw this Christ child as the king. He's the king. He's got the backing of the creator and sustainer of all life. The one who controls all of the skies is the one who placed this king here. I believe that's the perspective of the Magi. I want to bring out one other application to this. And I said we'd talk about this concept of nations. Let's close out quickly with this concept of nations. What's happening here? From the perspective of the Magi, Jesus was worthy to be worshipped by the nations. Verse 2. Where is he that has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to do something. What have we come to do? To worship him. We must remember, and I think this is a massive part of this story. Why is this so important? Who were these fellows? Brothers and sisters in Christ, these were members of the nations. These were Gentiles. Why is that important? Because in my mind, I run right back to our first study we had four weeks ago, where God Almighty promised something to Abraham. What did he promise? Land, seed, and that through Abraham, what? All the nations of the world would be blessed. In fact, I think Paul, Paul summarizes it so well in Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, if you want to put that down. Paul says this, And the scriptures, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. How did these members of the nations worship? Verses 10 and 11 tell us very clearly. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They couldn't contain themselves. Uh, To me, that's another expression, another evidence that when they exited Jerusalem looking for the Christ child, that the star reappeared because they couldn't contain themselves when they saw it come up again. Exceeding joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. 
Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. I think the response is, is this. They had a response of faith. <laughs> Which, by the way, part of the story is that they had to believe the Bible. Do you understand that? They had to believe what Micah said. That is so important for us as we are now on the latter part of this redemptive story. That God has gifted us with the word of God, telling us clearly about this Messiah. What is our call? Our call is to respond by faith to the scriptures. The revelation of Jesus Christ in the scriptures. Through this response of faith, I think this required a couple things or included a couple things. It It included diligence and it included obedience trusting they had to trust the scriptures how else did they worship through joy this is joyful worship they not only responded in faith but they were exuberant about it they were excited something had just happened verse 11 and going into the house they saw the child with mary's mother and they fell down and they worshiped him and they opened their treasures they offered him gifts gold frankincense and myrrh What did this include as we wrap this up? This included expressions of humility. I absolutely love this part of the story. Why? These magi, these men who had just traveled 900 miles to see Jesus, these magi who had cultural status in their land, when they saw Jesus, what did they do? They fell down and they worshiped him. Not only did they worship him through expressions of humility, they worshiped him through gifts of adoration. They offered what was valuable to them to a king worthy to receive them. This, brothers and sisters in Christ, is our call as we follow Jesus Christ. We are to faithfully come to him in humility. We are to share gifts of adoration. And I want to say when it comes to the gifts of adoration, I think Paul in Romans 12 clearly describes what this primarily looks for you and I. Here's what he says. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what is our call? If we want to follow the example here of these magi, we are to come to Christ in responses of faith. We are to come to him with expressions of humility and joyful worship. I want us to wrap this up this morning was something like this, this key idea. If you take the story of the Magi, and there's so much more to the story that we didn't even touch on today. But if you were to take this story and summarize it down to one sentence, I think it would have to be something like this. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped. Not just as the little Christ child in the manger or sitting on Mary's lap, but as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, I think there's another important part of this, and here's what it is. Jesus is worthy to be worshipped by the nations. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have been brought into the story. Do you realize that? That you and I have been brought into the redemptive story through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
I look at this, I think Jesus, who graciously included the nations, is worthy to be worshipped by the nations. I want to bring up this simple text as we close out this morning. This week, Jim brought this up at our staff, uh, our staff meeting de- devotional this week. Here it is. Paul to the church of Ephesus says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, you were Gentiles in the flesh. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God. And I love this verse. If we want to tag anything to this next week, as we worship God with our families through the Christ, can we tag ourselves to this verse, verse 13? But now, in Christ Jesus, who, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is you and that is me. So what? What can we take home today? I think this question would be appropriate. In faith, have you responded to Christ? Last couple weeks, I've asked this question. I clearly don't want to take for granted that every single person in this room already has a relationship with God by faith. I want to ask you this morning, have you responded to Christ by faith? My plea is this, please don't delay. It's no mistake that you're here this morning. Would you come to Jesus by grace In faith, by faith, respond to this Jesus today. In just a minute, we're going to pray. And I want to guide you as we think through this conversation of your relationship with God. I want you to think diligently about this. Have I come to Jesus by faith? Would today be the best day of your life? I have one other application. So what today is this? With joy, do you praise, do we praise God that we've been included in his story? Do we worship him because of this? This week is so much more than just the cool looking lights and the trees. It's so much more than the frenzy of gifts and the marketing techniques. This is about the worship of the king. Will you corporately this week join in worship of the king?